gathered your people. It's important to you. You want your people gathered. You certainly use our individual relationships for us to grow in our Bible reading and our times with you. But you value the time when people get together. It's your bride. It's your church. And so we gather and we rejoice in the truths of our God and Savior. And so this morning we want to thank you for gathering us. We all come from such different backgrounds. But we have the same Lord Jesus who has forever linked us together. And now we share a kindred spirit. We love one another because our, love, our God first loved us. Lord, there are those who would want to be here this morning. I've spoken to several of them already this morning. They've gone through surgeries or they're having complications. Something is difficult in their life health-wise. And I, I pray, Lord, first for your healing for them, that you would heal them, Lord. But you would also grow them through this experience. But, Lord, help them know we love them. We miss them. Many are watching even now. Lord, for others, for one reason or another, can't be, can't be here with us today, we pray that you would encourage them. They'd have time in your word. Lord, so grateful for our missionaries around the world. What a joy to see what they're doing. You have sent them to places that are unique, and you called them, and you called them, and you've called us to hold that rope in a sense and let them down into that well and be faithful on this end so we give towards those things, Lord. But we are so grateful they're there. In so many countries around the world, we have an opportunity to help spread the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we thank you for those missionaries, Lord. Father, I want to thank you for the children's workers particularly. I'm so grateful for them who watch our little ones uh, while we worship and uh, enjoy the teaching of the word. Please bless them this morning. Give them strength. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I will return to 1 Corinthians um, in a couple of weeks uh, and start chapter 15 and work our way to the resurrection day. Uh, Easter, I believe, is April 7th this year. And We'll have lots of services, Good Fridays, a good uh, sunrise service, and Easter as well. But this morning, I want to start just a short little series um, out of the book of Luke, Luke chapter 15. Uh, this is a passage and a theme that's very dear to my heart. Uh, it's something I've been thinking about for a long time, and I've been wanting to find a break within 1 Corinthians to teach on this. And to be honest, this morning, I, I've been writing on this series to challenge myself. I want to be better at this. And I pray as I preach on God's word that you too will be challenged. I know God's word promises never to return void and I pray that it hits all of us in our hearts. This morning I want to give you an introduction to what brings joy to God. What brings joy to God? There's no outline this morning. I know several people said, Scott's not preaching. There's no long outline. <laughs> uh, one, I want you to listen today. Uh, two, I want you just free to write down passages and thoughts that I go through here as we get ready to work through these three stories. I'm just going to focus on the first two verses this morning, but we will, over the next two weeks, work on these three stories that we find in here, told by our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the story of a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And it is a story of redemption, and it is a story of the character of God as we study these things. And the more I study it, the more it exposes the character of God. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, if we went around the room this morning and you shared with me what you think uh, most characteristic of God or his greatest attribute, we'd probably hear a lot of wonderful things. You may talk about the omnis, right? Omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient. Those are beautiful things, right? Uh, um, omnipotent, he's, he has all authority and power. Can you imagine that? That cannot be trusted to any human. <laughs> he has all power and authority over all things at all times and all places. That's, we don't have that. <laughs> uh, he's omnipresent. He's everywhere at every moment. He has an ongoing, beautiful, personal relationship with all of his children. He sees the good and the bad and all of those things. And we could go on and on about his attributes. But maybe, maybe one attribute that we may not come forth quickly to our mind is God is a God of joy. Most of the time when you ask people 
about God, what they think about him. They think he's some kind of higher power. Someone that sits up there and rules and casts judgment onto people. If you're ever witnessing regularly, you'll hear that. You have the opportunity to tell them of your God. But how many of us would say, when we say what we think of God, we would say he's joyful. And maybe a follow-up question might be this. What makes him joyful? That's a good question, isn't it? And that's what I think these texts answer here. These three stories answer that question, how God finds his joy. For a little commercial and a uh, preview here, look at verse 7 with me. I tell you that in the same way, Rick read this for us. There will be, listen to this, more joy in heaven of one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 10, look at this, in the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then drop all the way down to verse 32, the finding of the lost son. But we had to, the father says, listen, oh, isn't that a beautiful phrase? We had to rejoice for your brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost but is now found. See, these stories show us the joy of God. They show us the joy of angels. They show us the joy of heaven. They show us the joy of the redeemed, and they show us the joy of the redeemer. It's quite fascinating, isn't it? This passage will highlight the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It will remind us over and over why Jesus came to this earth. And we need to be reminded of those things. It's in stark contrast there's going to be a stark contrast. We'll see this as we even explore this this morning between the religious elite today. There's a great contrast between those who they wanted prestige. They wanted the center stage. And here's what you're going to see. They wanted nothing of what God wanted. The redemption of the loss. But Jesus is God, isn't he? We know that. He's God. And he possesses that divine characteristic, that attribute of joy. And he finds joy when sinners repent. He, he finds great joy. And he finds joy in drawing them to himself. I want to take you to Hebrews chapter 12. But this passage, I'm going to come back to and back to throughout. It's really a center piece to support our teaching in Luke 15. Go to Hebrews chapter 12 with me because I really want you to look at this verse. I know many of you know it, but I want you to look at it fresh. Hebrews 12, chapter 2, 12, chapter 2. The Bible, after telling us that we've been surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses, these men and women listed in chapter 11 of those who by faith trusted God in extraordinary circumstances, all hoping for a greater kingdom, a greater priest, a greater prophet, a greater king. It was all more than what was given to them in the Old Testament. They knew there was a Messiah coming. And then the writer tells us this, look at these words, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Those words are amazing. One, fix your eyes on Jesus. Hey, are you like me? When my eyes get off Jesus, you get in trouble? Right? There's always something distracting us, trying to pull us onto something else. We need to fix our eyes, gaze our eyes upon our Savior. It's a healing balm for our souls. It rebukes us and rejoices our hearts. It, it does things that we, we can't even imagine we could do on our own. But he's the author. An author is one who pins something down. He's the owner of those words. He's, he's the owner of that statement. Well, Jesus is the author of our faith, and he's the perfecter of it. We could never perfect our faith. We could never faith our way to God on our own. But then we come to this phrase, and this is what I'm after. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. When you think about Jesus, you always don't see somebody maybe super joyful in the scriptures. 
It wasn't an outward joy that Jesus constantly displayed in his lifetime here, his life on the earth, his ministry here. There was a joy inside of him to rescue people. Notice the next phrase says, despising the shame. That means he did not care about the shame. The joy to rescue was greater to him. This is a joy that he wants us to share with him. See, we often see Jesus as a man of sorrows, right? Most of his days on earth were not always reflective of a joyous Savior. And that's because he was on mission. He was here for a goal. And what was that goal? To die. (laughs) That's his goal. His goal was to die. His goal was to die for us, and he fought Satan and his forces in the wickedness of man all the way to the cross until his hour came. And so we often don't see or maybe appreciate the joy that was set before him. Jesus found, think about this, Jesus found great joy suffering for you and I. He found great joy joy fulfilling the father's plan because there was no other way to get us to the kingdom of God he found it probably for us almost unexplainable joy in his perfection to die for this wretch he found joy in that redeeming the lost that's his goal he's just like the father That's what the Father's goal was always to do. And when we study the Godhead, this is what we see over and over throughout the Scriptures. There is a joy of recovering the lost. And you say, well, Jesus is here, and and, and for the joy set before him, right? Yes, but God has the same joy. Can I walk you through just a little bit of Old Testament uh, passages to give you an understanding of the Godhead? I want to work with God and then Christ and then the Holy Spirit. I want to show you that that's the goal of the Trinity is their joy of redeeming people. Look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 13. Excuse me, chapter 30. If you're with us on Wednesdays, and I really encourage you to come out, we're working our way through the Pentateuch. We're in the book of Numbers right now. And we are watching God lead a very disgruntled group of people called his nation Israel to the promised land. They reject him repeatedly over and over and over. And yet we'll see in this passage particular, even in their coming rebellion, the prediction of their coming rebellion is in this passage just a chapter or two before Moses dies that God has joy in redeeming Very wicked people. It's pretty amazing. Listen, follow along with me. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 1 and following. So it it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessings and cursings which have been set before you, and you you call them to mind in the nations where the Lord God has banished you. Wait a minute. It's time out there. They're on the border for the second time in the promised land, about ready to go in. The older generation has all died out. God is bringing the younger generation in that they said would be prey to the enemies of Israel. He's about ready to bring them in. Joshua's going to lead this group. They're going to wipe out nation after nation and take this land. But God is warning them because he knows what they're going to do. He says, I'm going to bring you back from the nations which I banish you. Verse 2, and you'll return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul. Now he's getting beyond outside stuff, right? All the, all the temple worship and all those things. You're going to come back to me with your heart and soul. We've never seen Israel do this yet. According to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples from where the Lord has scattered you. The Lord scattered you there. For if you're out Outcast are at the ends of the earth. From there the Lord uh, your God will gather you. And from there he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into a land with which your fathers possessed. And you shall possess it. And he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. Now he's deep into their souls, right? In the heart of your descendants, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, so that you may live. This hasn't happened yet. The Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies, 
on those who hate you and persecute you. And you shall again obey the Lord and observe all his commandments which I command you this day. Now here's verse 9 what I'm after. Look at this. After all of that a prophecy of the future of Israel. Look what he says. Then the Lord God will prosper you abundantly in all the work of your hands and your offspring of your body and the offspring of your cattle and the produce of your ground. Look at this. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good just as he rejoiced over your fathers. He loves to redeem people. He redeemed their fathers out of Egypt And he brought him great joy to show his power to bring people out of slavery. And here in this great prophetic text, he says, I will rejoice. I will have great joy as I redeem you like I redeemed your fathers. This message goes throughout the Old Testament. The psalmist recording the great events events found in the Pentateuch in Psalms 105 verse 43 says this. And he brought forth his people with joy. That's God. God brings forth his people with joy, his chosen ones, with a shoutful, a joyful shout. The prophet, particularly Isaiah, when we get into the last, oh, half dozen, seven chapters of Isaiah, it really turns prophetic as it looks forward after both the, the northern tribes and the southern tribes have been sent off to captivity. Isaiah turns his attention to the coming of the Lord. And he uses an illustration of a wedding. We just had one last week and we just had one yesterday, JT and Maria. Um, and he says this in Isaiah 62.5, For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will, future tense, rejoice over you. God rejoices over the returning of people to walk with him. Look with me at Jeremiah. I want to work my way through prophets and and psalms in this. I want to show to you that this is the nature of our God. Jeremiah chapter 32. One of my favorite passages in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 32 verses 37 and following. Behold, I will gather them out of all the lands which I have driven them in my anger. Remember, when we talk about Israel, this isn't national salvation just because they're Israelites. He has a remnant. He always has a remnant. He has a remnant of people, and he has a remnant of Jews that he will bring back to himself all through the finished work of Jesus Christ. But here, I will gather them out of the lands to which I have driven them in my anger, in my wrath, in great indignation, and I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety. They shall be my people, and I will be their God, and I will give them one heart. Now he's back to the heart again. Back to the inside, not the outside. And the one way, whoo, that's, that's the term for Jesus. And they may fe- that they may fear me always and their own, and their own good and, their, and the good of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not return, turn away from to do good to them. And I'll put a fear of me in their hearts so they will not turn away from me. Now here's verse 41 I'm after. And I will rejoice over them. We have a God who rejoices over the lost who are returned. And if that's not a demonstration of people, and you look at that, who strayed away, who who rebelled against God, he goes and finds them. This is our loving God. Nehemiah, the priest that returned with the 50,000 back to Israel after captivity with Babylon and uh, and, and Medes and Persians and so forth. He says this, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10, do not be grieved. Now this is what he says, for the joy of the Lord is our salvation. We quote that verse all the, way, all the time, right? We even sing it. The joy of the Lord is our salvation. The joy of the Lord is our salvation. The joy of who? The Lord. The Lord gives us his joy so we have strength. See, this is an attribute we often don't highlight about God. David, in his great song that he wrote, worshiping God in 1 Chronicles 16, verse 27, says this, Splendor and majesty are before him, God. Strength and joy are in his place. Later, David penned Psalm 1611, and he said this, You will make known to me the path of life, and in your presence is the fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. 
He's full of joy. Time fails me to go and look at many others, but in Ezekiel, God is very clear that he wants us to understand what he pleasures in and what he does not pleasure in. Three times in the book of Ezekiel, he says these, quote, I do not pleasure in the death of the wicked. Meaning, I have no joy in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God. Then he says this, rather than he who should turn from his ways and live. That's where my joy is. God finds great joy in repentance and lost, blind seeing, lost being found. And so God takes no joy in the death of the wicked. He loves and joyfully to recover the loss. He experiences joy when every time someone turns to, from, the, from the world to him. Uh, last Sunday night, as you heard in our introduction, uh, there was eight baptisms. And I, I told Jean, I go home, I said, I think that was my favorite baptism. And she goes, you say that every week, every time we have it. I go, I know, uh, because it's so joyful. And, and if you miss that, let me not admonish you too hard, but you shouldn't have. <laughs> it was so good. We sang songs and baptisms, and, and you could sense the pleasure and the joy of the Lord as people gave testimony to God how he redeemed them when they were lost. That's where our God finds great joy. Someday, brothers and sisters, those in faith here, you're going to enter in heaven, and God will say to you, as Jesus says in Matthew 25, 23, well done, good and faithful slave or servant. Listen to this. Enter into the joy of your master. That's who he is. He's a joyful God. And if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you do not see him as joyful. In fact, you will not see him as joyful if you die in your sin. He'll be your judge. But to all of us who know Jesus, we see God as joyful. I think that's mind-blowing truth when I think about this, that God's rejoicing over my salvation. Isn't that amazing? He rejoices over your salvation. The Bible tells us here that when you enter in, he's going to express this perfect love in a way where you're going to experience firsthand, you and I are going to experience firsthand, pure, unadulterated joy from the Father as you come in. Wow. Makes you want to go, doesn't it? And right now, think about what happens right now as we look in our passages here. God and the angels and all of heaven are shouting for joy at the testimonies of those who come to know the Lord Jesus, even as we saw last weekend. Ecstatic joy in heaven. We prayed for our missionaries today, and I hear reports of people in every language and tribes and tongues and all the different things that are going on around the world. And, and so I, I can't help but think heaven must be just a constant, ecstatic place of joy. He's always saving people. And here was Little Riverbend, an obscure place in Florida. We had eight baptisms. One, one little, small portion of the world. God is saving, and I imagine joy is just overwhelming in heaven. Though we don't see this maybe outward or overtly joyous Savior in his ministry on the earth, we do see how he talks about his joy. Let me give you some verses. John 15, 11, Jesus said this just the night before his death. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Isn't, that, isn't it incredible? Can you imagine sitting there, his disciples? He says, look, here's my greatest pleasure, is I want you to have all my joy. Perfect joy. Not stained with sin. Not stained with, with what we would call temporary happiness, right? I want you to have my joy, Jesus says. In his high priestly prayer, there in the garden, just before Judas and the tribe comes to haul him off, he prays this in chapter 17, verse 13 of John, but now I come to you, speaking to the Father, and these things I speak in the world so that they, my disciples, who are over there sleeping, not paying attention, have not understood what's about ready to happen, so that they'll have my joy. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. 
What deep love. And you say, yes, but our Lord, our, our, I think of our Lord as the man of sorrows. And that's right, because Isaiah 53 says he was despised and forsaken of men. That was just going to happen right after that scene. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Like one who hid their face from him. They were despised and we, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray, each to his own, and turned away. But the Lord, God, Yahweh, has caused the iniquity of us to fall on him. That's Hebrews 12, 2. The joy he bestowed for dying for us. That's it. That's where the writer of Hebrews gets us from. The joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And look, this is the clear point as we study Luke 15 together over the next couple of weeks. These three stories show us the joy of God in the recover of the lost. So there's the father, there's the son. What about the spirit? Well, he's pretty easy to find joy, right? Anybody know the fruit of the spirit? Love. You should get that one. It's number two. In fact, a lot of people say love is the dominant attribute there and all these other attributes come from them. The first thing that comes from the love of the Spirit, the love of the Godhead, is joy. Pretty sad when us Christians are joyless, isn't it? It's pretty disappointing, isn't it? He despised the shame. He hung on the cross because he had joy to rescue us and we're miserable. We're not happy. Spirit of God is not his fault, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, fruitfulness, faithfulness, excuse me, gentleness, self-control, and such no, such no law can create, right? So when I lose my joy, it's often because I'm trying to do something from a legalistic standpoint of view because you don't find joy in legalism. When we love Christ and we appreciate all that he did for us and we worship um, on Monday school instead of just Sunday school, when that really grips us time and time again, there will be joy. And it's not just your joy, it's God's joy. The Spirit of God gives you that joy. Christ has brought us into his kingdom of joy through the work of the Spirit, Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. People think, oh, it's just going to be one big party in heaven. Well, I think there may be some truth to that. It's going to be awesome. There's no sin. But listen what the Bible says about this. Paul says, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, that's what the kingdom of heaven is about. It's about righteousness and peace and joy. Wouldn't you love those three things? Nothing ever wrong, all righteous according to God's standard. Full peace, no wars, no enemies, no blaspheming, none of that all gone, and then we stand in the joy of God. Anybody want to go home? I mean, the more I study this, the more I Lord, come soon. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Romans chapter 15, verse 13, a benediction where Paul tries to end the chapter but then keeps going. Kind of sounds familiar. Um, says this. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy. That's his prayer. Now may the God of all hope fill you with joy. Have you lost your joy this morning? What, what robbed it? What's in your life that can take God's attribute from you? I mean, we have to think about that, don't we? Because Paul says, look, now may the God of hope He's, he's, this isn't hope you get something for Christmas. This is everything we have, right? We rest everything in him. That God give you joy and peace in believing so that you'll bound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit helps you stay joy-filled. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6 says this, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, Paul says to this church that he loves so dearly, having received the word in much tribulation. Now stop right there. How many of you are going through some kind of tribulation right now? Could be financial, could be health, uh, could be relational, whatever it is, right? All of us have, I probably hit all of us right there in those three in some way. 
going through that, you have tri tribulations, right? But Paul says, be imitators of us, be imitators of the Lord. You've received the word, and it came maybe during a difficult time, but look at what it comes with, with joy of the Holy Spirit. God may put you through some testing, but he'll give you joy in the Holy Spirit. Ask him for it. Many times I've prayed, Lord, I want my joy back. A lot of times I've sinned and haven't walked with the Lord in the right way, and it's affected my soul. And I didn't lose my salvation because I can't lose what I didn't gain. But I have lost my joy at times. And I'll say, Lord, I want my joy back. Because I know you have it. I know it's perfect, and I know you give it to me through the Holy Spirit. Will you give me back my joy? The Holy Spirit takes what belongs to the Lord. John chapter 14, John chapter 16. I'll send you the comforter. He will take what is mine and he'll give it to you. He gives us joy. The Spirit gives us joy. Ask him for it. This was the theme of the apostles. Remember, we're talking about God's character of joy, of redeeming the lost. Joy is a product of God. The apostles jumped all over this theme in the Holy Scriptures. Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes, Make my joy complete by being the same mind. Maintaining the same love, unity in spirit, intent for one purpose. Make my joy complete. He experienced the joy of Christ. He wants everyone else to experience that. Get on the same page. John wrote in his first epistle, 1 John 1, 4, says, These things I write to you so that our joy may be made complete. Are we joyful people? Are you captured by the attribute of God's joy? When I started this study, I was thinking about the redeeming, the loss, and that. And the more I studied, the more I said, this is about the joy of God. This is about His joy and what, how He gets joy. And so I began to think about this for myself. Are we, are we joyful people? Are we captured by this great attribute of God's joy? Do we find joy in the things that God finds joy in? Good question. We always say holiness is loving what God loves and hating what God hates. We say that. But if you want joy, you have to love what God loves. He loves rescuing people. We know that. The text tells us that. He loves finding the lost, the fallen, the forsaken, the disemboweled. He, he, he loves all of those. It brings him great joy when he recovers them. When we start to study Jesus again, let me come back to our Savior he reveals the character of God, right? John 1, 18 tells us that Christ is the explanation of the Father. So to fully see the glory of God, we look into the face of Christ so we can see the Godhead completely. He's on earth to help us see who he is. And it truly challenges us when we look at it. And we, we have to question ourselves, is that mine? Do I personally have that kind of joy? Am I engaged with the Godhead in the recovery of the lost? Do I experience joy when a lamb returns to the full? If we truly desire to understand the Godhead, if we truly want to experience joy, the joy they experience, we must engage in the recovery of the lost. And you might be here today and you go, man, I've been, I have not been joyful. When's the last time you shared Jesus with somebody? When's the last time you encouraged another saint by the words of Christ and maybe the finished work of Christ having a gospel conversation? You, you know, you know when you get to witness, you come away. Maybe that person didn't get saved right then or we, we don't know what's going on there, but I guarantee, what do you come away with? Oh, you come away with a lot of joy. Each and every time I've been able to share Christ with somebody, I come away full of joy. Full of joy. That's the, that's the outcome of, of trying and coming along what God is doing and trying to reach the loss. See, this text reveals two hearts, right? When we look at this, and it reveals the religious elite or it reveals the heart of God. It's one of the two, and that's what we're going to see. Now, God's joy is, again, what we would call a communicable attribute, meaning. As we said earlier, we don't have all these omnis. We don't have all those. We can't be God, right? Even when we get heaven, we'll be like Christ, meaning we'll be sinless and we'll live eternally with him. But there are certain characteristics only the Godhead will have for eternity. But he does have things he gives to us. The Bible says he gives us his son's righteousness. Amen. Because you ain't getting into heaven without it. 
You've got to have righteousness, and that's a beautiful thing, right? Imputation, he takes our sin, imputes it on the son. The son gives us his righteousness. And so we share that, what we call a communicable attribute. We have righteousness. We're made holy. The Bible says we have a holy standing before God. We're given wisdom and knowledge. We now have an ability to love. Husbands are told to agape o their wives. That is unconditional love for their wife. And the Bible would not tell you to do something if God had not given you the ability to do it. And so we share that attribute with God. We share compassion and graciousness and mercifulness, just to name a few. But as believers, we've been given these to enjoy and to use for the glory of God as we declare his fame and his glory to the lost world. But again, one of the attributes that we don't talk by talking about is enough about joy. Are we joyful? Do we reflect the joy of our Lord? But I want to show you the contrast of these Pharisees. Notice in verse 1 of chapter 15, now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him, that's Jesus, to listen to him. But the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble. To grumble. See that in verse 2? That's, that's what they're known for. They're known for joyless religious people who think they're spiritually superior and they want nothing to do, listen to this, with what Christ wants to do with. Christ wants the sinner, the tax collector. He wants the Mary Magdalene's. They don't want anything to do with it. And it reminds us how different Jesus is. Luke 19, 10 says, For the Son has come, Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. They don't want anything to do with the lost. Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, chapter 20, verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And all of heaven, when you think about this, all of heaven is in contrast to the Pharisees and scribes here, right? The scribes, look at them. And the Pharisees and scribes, the Pharisees would be the, the kind of pastors and the ones who were in among the people. The scribes were the maintainers of the law and writing new traditions. And so it really lumps in this religious elite, a group of people together. They're, they're grumbling against the one person that, that you can only have hope in him that you can get to the kingdom of God. They're grumbling against him. But Jesus came to come after the ones that they were so embittered against, sinners, tax collectors. And because of this, verse 7, all of heaven is full of joy. Verse 10, all the angels are full of joy. Verse 32, the entire Father's house is full of joy. Such a contrast. Now, notice they highlight tax collectors and sinners. There's some things in this verse 1 and 2 that you should see. They were coming near to Jesus. And they were listening to him. The tax collectors and the sinners, the ones completely avoided by the religious elite, they are pressing in. They are trying to get near to Jesus. The word means close proximity. They want to hear him. They want to hear his word. These are the most wretched people to the religious elite. They find themselves being drawn to Jesus. And of course, that's what John 6, says. No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me, draws him. There's an intentional work of God to draw people to himself. Why? Because he wants joy. He wants the joy of recovering them. He's drawing them. John chapter 10, verse 3, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. You can see it. Look, they're trying to draw near to him. What a statement. People's lives are being changed in this passage. Heaven is rejoicing. And I think what strikes me the most is the religious group who were supposed to be the ones who, who were to be intercessory and to help people understand who God was and understand the law. They're rejecting the same people that Christ is going after. It shows you the heart, doesn't it? Notice they're listening to him. Not only do they want to be near him, but they want to hear him. They want to hear his perfect word. There's faith being built up in these people. Their faith is being granted to them. They want to hear from this long-awaited Messiah. 
If you look back at chapter 14, the last verse, um, just in the closing of that verse, and I'll come back to this in a minute because I'm going to refer to this, these parables. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, those floppy, cartilage-filled appendages on the side of your head are not for decoration, though we do decorate them. <laughs> they are for listening. And they're, they're given to us to hear God's word. And now, notice who's listening. The Pharisees and the scribes have closed their ears to the Lord, but those who they reject see as earthly uh, unclean people, they are listening. Notice in verses 1 and 2 that the Pharisees despise a certain groups of people, tax collectors and sinners. They classified people. They put them into classes. Tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors were the worst, though. They hated them. They hated these men. These men were men who came along. They worked in conjunction with Rome. They purchased a certain district. There they could extract funds from their own people, Jews extracting funds from Jews to pay to the Romans who hold them in captivity. They hated them. The Jewish tax collector was beyond hated, though. The Jews were, they did not allow one Jew to socialize with a tax collector. You were not allowed. You would be unclean if you socialized with a tax collector. Of course, this is their own traditions, not found in the word of God. They were deemed, listen to this, perpetually unclean. No seven days, no washing, none of that can get you. If you're a tax collector, you are perpetually unclean. That's how they deemed them. They were banned from the synagogues and the temple, making them impossible to inherit the kingdom of God. Well, Jesus loves tax collectors. You go, well, how do you know that? Matthew? <laughs> One of 12 men he calls to be with them. God takes this wretch to the Jewish society, and he not only makes him a disciple, he makes him an apostle. And has him write a book of the life of Christ. Look at with me at Luke chapter 5. You've got to see this, what happens here. This is the calling of Matthew. And then you've got to see, remember, the, I found this tracking the word grumbling. That's why word studies are good. You find your way into other passages. Oh, wow, I, didn't, I, didn't, I forgot about that. Luke chapter 5, verse 27. The Bible says after that, the healing of a leper and the paralytic, after that all happened, he went out and he noticed a tax collector named Levi, that's Matthew, sitting in a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything, Matthew, left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. Right? Remember? Hearing and following and wanting to be near. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house and there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. Guess who those other people were not? They're in the next verse. The Pharisees and their scribes began to grumble at the disciples. That's how I found this passage. Where's that grumbling? Anybody remember that? If you're in our study on Wednesday night... We are following the grumblers and the judgment that falls upon them as we work through the wilderness. They are just like their forefathers and the Pharisees and scribes began grumbling at his disciples saying, right? They wouldn't go to Jesus, but they went to the disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Well, there's omnipresent Jesus hearing everything they're doing, answers and says to them, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repent. Now, in their pride, they would go, oh, okay, we're the righteous. We definitely don't need to repent because we're righteous. That is actually a very backhanded, sarcastic, divinely sarcastic statement. Don't miss that. You're never going to be saved if you think you're righteous on your own. Your father is the father of lies, and as he says in John chapter 8, you will die in your sins if you think you're righteous on your own. See, this is all happening, right? Same thing. Tax collectors are mad. They're grumbling because he's with tax collectors and other people. 
Well, that's one tax collector. Know another one? He's short and climbed a tree. Zacchaeus. In fact, he was known as a chief tax collector. And he had short men's disease. So nobody likes this guy. He climbs a tree to see Jesus. Turn over to Luke chapter 19. When Jesus came to the place, he's in Jericho. He looked up, and this must have been Zacchaeus's district that he had all these other subcontractors underneath him working. It's in Jericho, and he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus has climbed the tree already. I'm cutting some of this off. Zacchaeus, now listen to this, hurry and come down. Now this phrase is so important. For today, I must stay at your house. You know, a Pharisee would never go into the house of one of these people because if they went into that house, they deemed themselves unclean. They saw them way beneath them. They would never go into the house. When God, when Jesus says this, I'm going into your house, they would, oh. it would have been overwhelming to them. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. That's Zacchaeus receiving Jesus gladly. Isn't that beautiful? And when they saw it, they all began to grumble. That's how I found this passage as well. Common theme here. goes all the way back to the Pentateuch. Saying, he has gone to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. How could he do that? They have no joy in recovering what God finds joy in. And we need to have that joy. What does God find joy in? He finds joy in recovering the lost. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions. I mean, he's just, this is it. I'm going to give up all this worldly pursuit. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'll give to the poor. And if it defrauded anyone, I'll give him back four times as much. And you know those Jews showed up. He's probably broke after this. And Jesus said to them, look at this, today salvation has come to, and he uses this word because it was so offensive to the Jews, has come to your house. I'm not only going to save you, I'm going to save your wife, your children, and everyone in there. That's the idea. What a beautiful teaching. And then the word sinners, you go back to Luke chapter 15. We have these tax collectors and we have sinners. These are the damned. This just lumps in a group. They're lawless. They're irreligious. They're, they're unrighteous scum would be their view of them. The religious elite had no value in them. They were completely beneath them. And they wouldn't be caught dead socializing with these people. The Pharisees accused Jesus of sin, of hanging around these people. Claimed they were partnering. He was partnering with them. Jesus knows what they're thinking, and he replies to that in Matthew eleven seventeen. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, they as the Pharisees and scribes, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's what they said about him. Then Jesus makes this comment. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. You know what that word wisdom right there is? It's referring to salvation. Salvation is vindicated by what I'm doing. You won't have anything to do with what God loves and find great joy, but I'm going to vindicate myself and God because I'm going to save them. You're going to reject them and die in your sin. I'm going to save them. I'm going to have great joy. What an amazing statement. And Jesus did hang around these people, right? His goal was to recover them. And so the Matthews and Zacchaeuses and the Mary Magdalene's and many others are proof of his power to recover the loss and give them the inheritance of the eternal kingdom. This is the Godhead's extraordinary gift of joy. He has great joy. But the Pharisees and scribes, they could never be described as joyful people, right? And if they did, it was hypocritical. And then Jesus would preach a sermon like Matthew 23 and say, whoa, right? They act like, oh, we, we you know, we're, we're giving the, uh, uh, every dill, dill seed, we'll give a tenth, one of those, you know. We won't even eat until we tithed because, we, because we're such great givers. He goes, woe to you. You make 
you make converts twice the son of hell as yourself. He doesn't mess around. Go read Luke, uh, Matthew 23. He knows that, they're, that they, they act one way on the outside. They're like washed, uh, whitewashed tombs, but dead inside. They don't love what God loves. This is a mark of a believer. You love what God loves. You love where he gets joy. You want joy from that. Until so you engage in evangelism. You engage in the retrieving of lost. You engage in that because you love what God loves. And we do that in lots of ways. Some of us, you, you may witness, some may witness a little more than others in here, but you'll give, you'll, you'll serve, you'll provide help, and you'll ask God to give you strength when that opportunity comes. Because you want to engage with the things that God loves. Well, the religious elite saw these people as people of the dirt. That's what they referred to them. William Barclay's commentary is really helpful on this. He wrote this, the Pharisees gave to people who did not keep the law a general classification. They called them people of the land or dirt. And there, then there was a complete barrier between the Pharisee and the people of the land. The Pharisaic regulations laid down said this, when a man is one of the people of the land, entrust no money to him, take no testimony from him, Trust him with no secret. Do not appoint him as a guardian over an orphan. Do not make him a custodian of charitable funds. Do not, account, uh, do not accompany him on a journey. A Pharisee was forbidden to be, in the guest, be, a house, uh, to be the guest of one in their house. He was forbidden uh, so far as it was possible to have any business dealings with him. He was, it, was, uh, it was a Pharisaical aim to avoid any contact with people of the dirt in anything. And it was not in the law of God. Barclay says this, this strict Jews said this. Not that there was joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, but there will be joy in heaven over one sinner who is obliterated before God. Look, Jesus knows their heart. Leon Morris said this in the same text, says this, the, sinner, the sinners were ostracized and regarded as outcasts by the religious elites. They, all they were all considered immoral in those whose occupations that the religious elite required regarded as incompatible with the law. They were so afraid that the people of the dirt would pollute them that they would pray that God would obliterate them and they saw no reason for them to be around. The rabbinical tradition was written, this is certainly not in the Bible, this is things they added, that they were not to go near them, listen to this, even to bring them the law. See, Jesus knows their heart. You know what that means? They had absolutely no desire to convert them. No desire. Mealtimes were a huge problem. Um, if you've ever had the pleasure of being, being in the Middle East, mealtimes are long. I found that out. Samir's with Gina and I were like, <laughs> they just sit back. And they enjoy long meals together. Those are a good lesson for Gina and I. Slow down. Appreciate life. Well, you get a Pharisee in a room with a sinner, there's all kinds of problems. I was reading one of commentaries on Dr. MacArthur. He gives an um, example of two Pharisees that were in, recorded in their own laws and their own traditions, that a Pharisee who was in the same room, this is how strict they were and how legalistic they were, that if there was one man eating cheese and one man eating meat, they had to leave because their mind would now put meat and milk together and that would be a sin because you're not supposed to uh, boil the calf in his mother's milk. And they had to get out of there or they'd be unclean. This is, this is how far they went. And then you throw some sinners in there. Notice the patch that says Jesus was eating with them at the end of verse 2. Oh my goodness. Look at, look at chapter 14. He, he, this is, uh, Jesus was leading up to this, right? He, he knew what he was doing. Early on in 14, they invite a man with dropsy, though they didn't get close to him because they're trying to trap Jesus. So Jesus knows what they're doing, right? So chapter 14, verse 11, this is what he says to him: For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Verse 12, and he who says, to, says, on, 
went on to say, excuse me, he also went on to say to the one who had been invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, you, uh, otherwise they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment, right? There's your good pat on the back. But when you give a reception, now this is going to tick them off. Invite the poor, the cripple, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Can you imagine them hearing that? You want me to be in the presence of somebody who's a cripple? Absolutely not. Chapter, six, uh, chapter 14, 16 through 24, he gives an example of what he's going to do. The key verse is verse 21. He sends a slave out, wants them to bring back people. And then the head of the household, he became angry, right? He said, go out because the righteous people won't come to this great banquet the Lord has put on. He says, go out into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring them here. Bring in the poor. Bring in the cripple. Bring in the blind. Bring in the lame. Because I want to rescue the lost. That's what our Lord is after. That's where he finds joy. And as you turn back to 15, and man, what happened? Um, it says, now all of them were coming. All of them were coming. All the outcasts were coming to the Lord. And that's probably all in that area, but that's just, it's an amazing word. And I love circling alls because it makes me think how many people, how many sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and people who are at the, of the people of the dirt were coming to Jesus. And the more they came, the more offended the religious elite were. Jesus touched bleeding women. It's not amazing. He touches bleeding women. They, they wouldn't get near her. They would get a street over from her. He touches the eyes of the blind. He puts his fingers in the ears of the deaf. He deals with mentally handicapped. We see that. He touches leopards. All this because he desires to recover the lost. Meanwhile, the Pharisees twisted scripture they would read psalms 1 this way how blessed is a man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked that's me nor stand in the path of the sinners nor sit in the seat of the scoffers that's us me 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 that's not what that verse was written for Every verse teaches us that God has changed our life and we strive to follow our Savior, our God, who, is, who loves righteousness. And we, and we don't dwell, we don't take up resonance with the wicked and, and engage in all of their stuff because God has saved us from those sins. They twist that all the time. They would take a verse in Proverbs, my son, do not walk in the way with them. See, they walk over there, we walk over here. Parable of the what? Good Samaritan. Amazing. Well, I gotta, I gotta quit here. Hayward's gonna kill me. Let me close with just a challenge. Do you love the gospel? Do you love the finished work of Christ? It's such an important question because that's the means for the joy of God, right? And that's what we're going to see in this passage. And I know I didn't get very far, but we're going to tackle the, the lost lamb and we're going to tackle the lost coin and the lost son over the next two weeks. But here we're going to see that the gospel is God's power to rescue and recover the lost, the fallen, the downtrodden. That brings him great joy and it should bring us joy. I think the Pharisees got one thing right in verse 2. Jesus ate, fellowshiped with sinners. And I love that. So if God finds his joy in the recovery of the lost, the blind, the deaf, the mute, and loves to save them, shouldn't we? And these stories will challenge us. One lamb out of a hundred, one coin out of ten, and one son out of two. That's what he's going to challenge with us next week. I pray we will love our Lord. Let me pray and then let's sing a song. Father, thank you for this time together. I apologize, Lord, for going long, but this is you, Lord. We can't talk enough about you. We can't sing enough about you. We can't rehearse the gospel enough about you. Lord, this is why we work so hard to engage the lost, to recover the fallen. Our goal is to follow your lead. There's lambs that are lost. They're coins that are valuable. 
They're sons that are irreplaceable. And you pursue every one of them, and we follow you, and we find great joy when we do that. And we'd ask, Father, that you would help us be a church that follows your path, recovering the lost and experiencing the joy of God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.